As you're taking your seats, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Well, uh, Christmas is right around the corner. Uh, announcing Christmas services just reminds me of that, and uh, so does the snow outside. A little bit depressing, but that's okay. We'll deal with it. Um, just a real quick survey. Uh, how many of you have your homes already decorated, ready to go for Christmas? Show of hands? Okay. Good for you. Good for you. Now, everybody else who doesn't is guilty. They're going home today to do it, right? Um, how many of you are at least cut the Christmas music going around the house? Right here? Yeah? yeah? All right. Getting in the spirit of Christmas. Good for you. Um, how many of you are already kind of rolling through all the, the Christmas movies? Yes, right. right. So you just open up Netflix. There they are. They keep popping up, right? Every year, some cheesy, romantic Christmas comedy. We love Christmas movies around our house, and this is the time of the year where we definitely have them going on the weekends and uh, starting to kind of get in that Christmas mood. Um, made me think of one of the greatest Christmas classics, potentially of all time, uh, a story in which the main character is under actually immense attack. He knew he had a massive target on his back and that the enemy wanted to exploit all of his vulnerabilities and his weaknesses. And his enemy in this movie was cunning and strategic, seeking to strike under the cover of darkness, seeking in some senses to steal, to kill, to destroy. But the hero of the story was committed to standing firm. It's part of what makes the story so compelling. Committed to holding his ground to not be overtaken. And in so doing, he drew up a detailed plan to counter every attack with the appropriate weapon and the appropriate defense. But his preparation began when he finally understood his duty. And the turning point of the film is when he declares, this is my house, I have to defend it. <laughs> yes, Kevin McAllister was home alone. <laughs> but he was able to stand and resist against the enemy. I know, I know what you were thinking. You thought I was talking about Die Hard, which is actually the second greatest <laughs> Christmas movie of all time. <laughs> Look, it's a silly, silly illustration, but I had you, didn't I? I had you. And I want you to consider, listen, the relevance of some of the truths that I have just shared with you. The reality is our enemy is no joke, is he? And if you were here last week, you saw that very clearly. And this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, the call in our text is to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Last week, we saw in great detail what exactly we're up against, that we are in the greatest battle, fighting the greatest of enemies, but we have been given the greatest of resources. Our enemy is a defeated foe, a mortally wounded opponent who's been stripped of his rights of authority, his rights of power and dominion and rule, but, but rather than waving the white flag in surrender, rather than peacefully and quietly going away and submitting and surrendering, he is ramping up his assault on the children of the king who has conquered him. Because we saw in Revelations 12, 12, listen church, he knows his time is short. When we follow Jesus, the intensity of the battle will ramp up, but so by God's grace and kindness will the strength he provides. And part of receiving that strength that we saw last week is not being active, but 
passively resting in the finished work of God. But I want you to see that Paul makes it clear, both from last week's text and in this week's text, that there is an active pursuit that must characterize the Christian life if we are to receive this strength in its fullness. We are given a strength that is not our own, and in this text this morning, we see that we are also given an armor that is not our own. And to put this armor on requires an intentional and active preparation on the part of God's children. Paul describes it like this in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's begin back at verse 10. We'll kind of get a running start from the context. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to stop there. And we're going to cover in detail... Um, over the next few weeks, what it means to put on the armor of God. Really what we see here is the requirement for the Christian to suit up for battle. Being battle ready means putting on battle armor. This is unequivocally a call for us to suit up in preparation for the battle. So I want to show you this from the text. First, suit up because the armor of God protects us against the schemes of Satan. I want to start very generally, and then we're going to look at the first two pieces of armor, get a little bit more specific about how the armor of God works. But before we get into those specifics, we have to understand in a broad sense what the armor of God is and how it operates in the life of a Christian. Again, the the driving thought in this text is standing. Paul has used that word or the root of that word four times in four verses. And here, in verse 13, he says to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or to resist, to stand firm. He uses that term again and again. That's the main objective of this text. Now, I want you to understand what it means to stand. You see, standing implies that this is less about victory or defeat, and it is more about holding fast to territory that has already been won by Jesus Christ. That's why the injunction here and the command is not march or press forward. It's a call to stand because in reality, the victory has ultimately been won in Jesus Christ. And we are now resisting the onslaught of the enemy. He says it again in verse 13, stand therefore. Or verse 14, excuse me, stand therefore. In other words, don't don't advance, don't retreat, hold the ground against the attacks of the enemy. Now the devil and his demons are cunning and strong, as we saw last week, but they are not omnipotent. They do not possess all power. They are not the supreme strength in the universe. You see, this text reminds us that a believer who is arrayed in God's armor is stronger than all the powers of the evil in the universe combined. We are resourced with the greatest strength and the greatest armor of all. There is a sense in which the armor 
does imply some offensive movement. It's, it's not all simply standing still and passive. There is, uh, I think, implied in wearing battle armor an offensive element to this. But the primary focus is defensive. We know there's some offensiveness to this. If, if we just kind of consider the flow of the book of Ephesians, the, the idea of sit, walk, and stand. That's kind of the, the framing we've used for this passage amongst other ones, the believer's wealth, the walk, and the warfare. But I think sit, walk, stand is, is really helpful just to be reminded of the progress that we are to be making and why it's necessary then to be able to stand firm. You see, Paul has already made it clear in Ephesians 2, 6 that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is our position. We are afforded all of the blessings and all of the benefit that are afforded to Jesus Christ. His victory is our victory. Our life is hidden in him. We sit, we rest, we find our peace in him. But then that moves us to walk, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, if we believe these right things and if we understand who we are, it is going to move us in an intentional direction and with action. And the whole idea of chapters 3 through 6 is to be growing and progressing in Christ-likeness so that, listen, the gospel will continue to advance with power so that we put the gospel on display in our lives and people hear it from our lips as we preach it. That, that is an offensive move on our part in, in the sense of moving forward, of progressing you see, we are, through the proclamation of the gospel, reclaiming territory from the enemy. One life at a time, one soul at a time, brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And as we do that faithfully, as we walk faithfully, the assault ramps up against God's children. When we are on mission, the target on our back is growing. When we are faithful to the Lord, the enemy wants to at attack and assault us with a greater intensity, and so it requires the ability to stand firm. Paul says that we are, in verse 13, to be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. The question naturally from that simple phrase is, what, what, what day is that? What is the evil day? I mean, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably got an answer for that one. But generally speaking, the evil day that Paul is talking about here really is, is every day we live in a world that is dominated by evil, where Satan runs rampant, where our hearts lead us astray and into sin. Every day we are tempted is, in one sense, an evil day. But specifically here, I believe that the, the evil day that Paul is most clearly talking about is the day when Satan chooses to ramp up his attack on you. The day where, where the assault is more real, more powerful, where the temptations are greater and stronger, when Satan has his eye on you and he is after you, that's why we need to be strengthened, Paul has been saying. We are to be strengthened in, in the strength of his might. So how are we strengthened? That's what Paul is answering for us in this text. That's what the armor of God is. It is the answer to how the Christian is ultimately strengthened. He puts on the armor of God. That's how the strength of God is appropriated. And so we need to understand what this armor is if we're going to use it effectively. First, 
Notice from verse 11 and 13 that it is the armor of who? Of God. It's God's armor. It's an armor, in other words, that is not only given to us by God. I want you to consider this. It's an armor that God actually wears himself. The scriptures speak of God as being a warrior God. Uh, the mighty, almighty warrior who fights on behalf of his people for the glory of his own name, who vindicates his own people. And this is an almighty warrior who has no match. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet, depicts God as a warrior fighting again with his own armor on to vindicate his people. Let me give you a few verses just to show you um, the significance of this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5 Isaiah wrote that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 59, verse 17, he says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He's talking about God and more specifically the Messiah. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And the implication then, if we see that God is wearing this armor, the implication is that what we are actually putting on, listen to this church, this is so important to understand, is God himself. That's why this language is already reminiscent of chapter 4, where Paul is saying to put off the old man and to put on the new man, which is being renewed into the likeness of Christ. Remember that? This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 1 um, that we are to be imitators of God. You see, we are to be becoming like the God we love and follow. The armor language, in other words, is a way to talk about our identification with God. And it's, it's so fascinating that when you consider this, that God gives us his armor, what he's really saying is, I give myself to you. I give all of me to you. You simply have to appropriate it to your own life. Now, first, understand this. As you're thinking about the armor, we need to kind of really understand what this is. It can frame it like this. Look, it's metaphor. It's not magic. Okay? When you think about the armor, you've got to think about it like this. It's a metaphor. It's not magic. It's not this kind of magical application of God's armor to you. It's real, it's real, but it's, it's metaphor. In other words, it's not some invisible helmet or breastplate that we have on and, you know, you know we kind of put it all on and, and, and we walk into the workplace and Satan comes up to attack and goes, oh, shoot, you put on the armor. Well, maybe tomorrow. It's real, but it's metaphoric language. All of the armor language is a way of talking about our identification with God in his character. That's why even representations of the armor that God wears are, are not always a complete parallel to what we're seeing even in this text. It's not meant to be this very rigid understanding of what the armor is. It's meant to tell us uh, we are to put on all of who God is. His character, his qualities, his work, and purposes. And those characters and qualities are concrete and they are real. Things like this from this text, righteousness, faithfulness, love, and truth. But the picture being used here is, it's figurative. You see, it's like armor. It has the same effect as armor. It protects us. It prepares us. Its effect is very, very real and it is very, very potent. We are given the command 
to take up or to put on over and over in this text. Take up the whole armor of God. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on readiness given by the gospel. You see this over and over, this language of, of strapping it to ourselves. So, so the natural question is, well, how do I do that? Some people think that, you know, you just got to pray it on. You, you pray on the helmet of salvation. You pray on the shield of faith. You pray on the belt of truth. And certainly there would be an element of prayer involved in this. But let me just ask you a question. Is there something here to act on? Is there something here that we need to act on that if we do, it appropriates these characteristics of God? Here's how we need to think about the armor. This is, this is incredibly important as we begin to move forward and kind of navigate each individual piece of armor. But with every piece of armor, listen, it presents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed. Okay? It's incredibly important. With every piece of armor, it presents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed. You could also add to that and something to be prayed according to verses 18 and 19, but we're going to leave prayer off for now. We'll come back to it. You can keep praying. Don't worry. You can do that too. But for our purposes, just see this. Something to be believed, something to be obeyed. So the first point of application for us this morning is something to be believed. What is that? That's this, that the armor will protect you. Okay, believe it. God promises it. He makes certain of it. It's the armor he wears. It's who he is. And nothing can stand against him. So if we are wrapped in him, nothing can stand against us. That's what you must believe. His armor will protect you. Here's what you must obey. You need to put it on. You need to put it on. It's not just going to happen mystically or magically. It needs to be happening specifically now, that's very general, so let's, let's get into the specifics together. Here's the second point. You need to suit up because the belt of truth protects against the lies of Satan. We're getting more specific. The belt of truth protects against the lies of Satan. Verse 14a, again, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. In ancient armor, the belt... It was something that was essential for every warrior, for every soldier. The belt was the piece of armor, in a sense, that held all the other pieces of armor on. It would hold your weapons secure, your sword and your daggers, but it was also used to gird up your tunic. You see, in the ancient world, they wore these kind of longer flowing tunics, and you can imagine what it's like to try and fight wrapped up in a bedsheet. And so the belt actually functioned as a tool to help kind of gird up your loins. That's the other phrase the Bible uses. The imagery is very vivid. You take the, the long flowing parts of the tunic that get in the way and don't allow you the mobility and the, the, the ability to strike properly or to protect yourself in the, in the midst of a wrestling match. And instead you tuck that into the belt at certain points. You cinch it up so that you are free, unencumbered. And here, what Paul is telling us in using this metaphorical um, imagery is that without guarding ourselves tightly with the truth, the rest of the pieces of the armor will simply clatter around in disarray. We'll, we'll actually be encumbered by a variety of things if we don't first do this, cinch ourselves up with truth, gird up our loins in the truth. No other piece of armor ultimately will be effective without beginning here. 
Jesus spoke a lot about the truth and its importance for the believer. In fact, he proclaimed to those in the bonds of false teaching that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He would pray in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Paul refers in Ephesians 4, 1 to the truth that is in Jesus. Remember, with every piece of armor, there's something to be believed and something to be obeyed. Okay, so we need to begin at the belief. So what is it here that we must believe? What we believe here is the truth. What we believe here is God's word. Look, there is an objective spiritual truth in Jesus and his scriptures. Truth about God, ourselves, history, and the future. That's how we know all of it. That God has revealed it to us in his word. And his word, as he says, is truth. It's how we know him. It's how we grow in him. It's how we're more useful to him. And without it, we do not have a chance in the spiritual battles we fight. You see, truth is what God uses in our lives to combat lies. And that's essential to understand as we go to battle because the word of God tells us that Satan himself is the father of what? Lies. He is the father of lies. Jesus said that he is a liar and he has been from the beginning. It's part of his nature. It's part of his battle armor. Lies. His very first assault upon humanity was to tempt them to rebel against God. Remember that in the Garden of Eden? To disobey one simple command and his whole approach to tempting Adam and Eve was to tell them alluring lies. And what's so fascinating is that those lies that Satan told worked on Adam and Eve. You say, why is that fascinating? They're people, but they're people, think about this, who at the time are unaffected by the fall. They don't yet have a sin-stained heart. They're not yet corrupted by the effects and curse of sin. And Satan is so cunning and so masterful, he convinces those who have not yet even tasted sin. Through subtle, simple lies. And if he can do that so successfully with Adam and Eve, imagine what he can do to you and I who are definitely corrupted by the effects of sin. Amen? Whose hearts are sinful and wicked, are bent towards sin already. We long for sin. We desire sin in our flesh Satan knows that, and so he entices the flesh with lies, lies that something is going to be sweeter tasting than God himself. Something is going to be more satisfying. The sin is going to be way better for you than anything God could offer. And what's fascinating is that Satan used the same tactics with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Another the temptation story? Where he comes alongside Jesus. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, Satan tempts him with three lies. That's what they were. Do it my way, Jesus. Do it my way. Submit to me. Trust me. By the way, this is Jesus successfully passing the test that Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden. Do you realize that? 
that the whole point of that story is not to teach us primarily how we fight temptation. That's often how that passage is used, right? Hey, we fight temptation, we fight Satan just like Jesus did, right? He quoted scripture, and we quote scripture. Listen, that's secondary. That's not the main point of that story. The main point of that story is here is Jesus, the second Adam, who has come to undo the works of the devil. And that requires that Jesus not fall and fail in the face of temptation like Adam and Eve did. Here is Jesus Christ taking back the authority over the one who usurped it in the garden. Here is Jesus Christ fulfilling all righteousness. Here is Jesus Christ declaring, I am the authority, not you. Satan said, why why don't we do this my way? And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 we're doing it God's way. And the way of God is through suffering and the cross. The way of God is through death because that is the only way to reclaim humanity from the power and penalty of death. The only weapon that Satan could ultimately wield against us. But it is true that as we look at how Jesus faced Satan, that secondarily, listen, we can learn from his ways. We can practice what he practiced. So maybe this morning here, you're you're struggling with sin. I, I know that most of you probably aren't, but maybe some of you are. Glad you caught that was a joke. Some of you, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. You're in real trouble, okay? You're in real trouble. Maybe there's a particular sin struggle in your life right now that you're very aware of. And some of the best advice I could give you is is simply to look at the struggles you're having right now, to identify the sin and the, and the areas of temptation that, are in your, temptation that are in your life right now, to call the sin what it is, to not justify it, to not make excuses, to not give it another name, but to actually call the sin what it actually is, what the Bible says it is, to confess your sin, to agree with God about your sin. And once you've done that and, and repented of that sin to the Lord, then, then you go to the Word of God. You, you search the Scriptures. When you know what that sin is, when you know what the problem is, you can go to the Scriptures and find passages that speak to that particular sin struggle you are having, that particular temptation that you're facing. And then you take the Word of God and you memorize the Word of God. You commit it to memory. Listen, you meditate upon it. You store up, as the Word of God says, store up the Word of God in your heart so that you may not sin against Him. That's the belt of truth, right there. The belt of truth, the word of God. God's way is better than my way. God's way is more satisfying than Satan's way and sin's way. So what's the sin for you this morning? Maybe it's some sexual sin. Maybe it's substances. Maybe it's anger and bitterness. Maybe it's pure selfishness and pride. Maybe it's lying or stealing. I I, I don't know what you happen to be struggling with this morning, and I know that some of you are are just saying, well, if I tell you, can you just email me the answers? Can you just give me the verses? Listen, the truth is, I don't want to know your struggles, all right? Tell Pastor Brian. He'll... he'll... (laughs) I'm kidding. Just type it into Google. It already knows everything about you anyways, okay? Verses will pop up instantly. I'm, I'm kidding. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but listen, part of what I, I want to help you with is understanding the importance of searching the Scriptures for yourself. 
Now, I'm not saying there's not point in, a point in going to somebody for help and saying, can you help me find this in the Bible? Like, look, I'm all for that. We're all about community here. We're all about coming alongside one, inch, one another. But part of, this, part of the journey of spiritual growth in your life is the ability to actually open the word of God yourself, to dig in deep to the word of God, to find the answers. It's part, the, part, the, the process of discovery is often part of the process of victory. Dig into the word of God, find out what the word of God says, and then believe what the word of God says. That's something to be believed. Secondly, what's to be obeyed? What's to be obeyed? Well, being girded with the truth has to do with self-discipline and total commitment to the truth. You see, both knowledge of the truth and truthful character hold us together in the fight. In other words, this is really a command to, to flee hypocrisy, to remove hypocrisy from our lives, to close the gap between what we know to be true and how we're living it out in our lives, to see those things come closer and closer together. It's practicing the Word of God. It's one thing to store it up in your heart. It's another thing to take that truth and to actually practice integrity, to practice the truth that you believe. And we are a people of the truth, where falsehood must be put far away from us. We're lying and hiding, deceiving and manipulating. They must just be so, so far out of the realm of who we are. Yes, stumbling here and there, but less so as we continue to put on the armor of God, the belt of truth. And that goes so far for, by the way, from protecting us against the schemes of the enemy. Think about that. To, to be a person of the truth protects you in immense ways from the schemes of the enemy. I mean, the armor that is cinched close by the objective truth of God and its subjective outworking in our lives is so incredibly important. You see, truth arms us with a clear conscience. Being a person who adheres to the truth gives you a clear conscience. I mean, why is the reason that we struggle so much with shame and guilt in our lives? Because our conscience is accusing us, right? Because we fall into sin. We're constantly falling into sin. Well, can you imagine if you begin to look more and more like Jesus, practicing the truth you know, your conscience begins to accuse you less and less. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Here it is, isn't that? By them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. You know what he's saying, Timothy? Be holy, be holy, be a person who practices the truth. When you are filled with God's truth and living it, you will have a good conscience, and having that, you can face anything. In areas of our lives where we just obey, just think about this, the enemy has very little opportunity to attack us. You ever notice that? I mean, we give Satan so much uh, ability and opportunity to attack us where we simply are resisting to obey Jesus. That's the area Satan is after. He knows where we're struggling to obey Jesus. He knows where we're struggling to apply the truth of God's word to our lives. And that's the area he goes to attack us every time. So let me just ask you, how's how's the spiritual battle going for you right now? Maybe you need to tighten your belt to regird yourself with the truth. We must fill ourselves with the truth of God's word and then consciously submit to it so we will habitually be truthful 
people, sincere, authentic. Third and, and finally, we need to suit up because the breastplate of righteousness protects against the accusations of Satan. As we continue to kind of look at each piece of armor again, we're also understanding that through this, we're able to see some of the ways in which Satan wants to attack us, some of the primary ways he wants to attack us. Paul says, as we were putting on the whole armor of God, to stand having fastened on the belt of truth, but also having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, in an ancient warfare and in the ancient world, the breastplate was, generally speaking, usually a piece of metal that covered the front of the body, kind of a sleeveless piece of metal, and its function was very obvious. It was simple. It was to protect all the vital organs of the body, especially the heart. And this is, in essence, what righteousness does for us. It protects our heart, spiritually speaking. And just think about how Satan often operates in our lives. Satan is called, according to Scripture, the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? Satan wields the weapons of accusation and condemnation. He loves to drive those daggers deep into our heart. By the way, these accusations that Satan wields in our lives are not false accusations. Do you ever think about that? We give him plenty of fodder, don't we? Right? And so when Satan's kind of accusing us of things, generally the truth is, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I've done. That's who I am. Yeah, yes, yes. So, you know, we can kind of be agreeing with those accusations. But here's how Satan often operates in our lives. He'll bring up the things that we are doing, the things that we've done, maybe even things we've done a decade ago. And he holds them over us. And he accuses us in very specific ways, tailored to your specific struggles, but some of them are very general because all of us struggle with similar things. He condemns us with, with our sin. He comes along and he says, you, you did that? How can you call yourself a son of God? How can you even show your face in church, after you've done what you've done, after you've behaved like that. God will never accept you now. How dare you try to serve Jesus when you've behaved in that way? You are filthy, you're pathetic, you're worthless, you're unlovable. Who do you think you are? You're nobody. Sound familiar to anybody? Just accusations and condemnation that are such a large part of the schemes of the enemy. So so what helps us here? The armor. The armor of God helps us here. Listen, when Satan is attacking like that, it's the armor of God that protects us. It's the armor of God that refutes the accusations and condemnation of Satan, right? There's, There's something to be believed, and there's something to be obeyed. And the belief part of this is so vital for the believer. You see, the breastplate of righteousness reminds us of what we're clothed in in Jesus Christ. We need to believe what the Bible says about our own righteousness, that our own righteousness is just filthy rags before God. You have nothing to offer God on your own apart from Him. Your good works are not pleasing to God apart from His work in you because all the good works you think you're doing are not for His glory, they're for yours. 
But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that is credited to you. Paul says that I'm not looking for a righteousness of my own or a righteousness that comes from the law in Philippians 3, he says. But a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ. He says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He says, if... if you do not have this righteousness. Listen, this is so important for you to understand. If you're here today and you know, you're not a follower of Christ or you're, you're considering what it means to be a Christian, here's what it comes down to. Are, are you going to be held with a righteous standing before God? Are you going to be seen, not simply listen as being good enough before God, but as being perfect before God? Perfect righteousness. And if you do not have this righteousness, listen, nothing can save you. But if you have it, you are safe for eternity. And for some of you today, the thing to be believed is this right here. For the first time. That you recognize that you are a sinner. You recognize that you, you cannot save yourself. You recognize that all, all of your sin means you don't have a perfect righteous standing before God. But you see the grace of God in that he wants to give you that perfect standing. That he would come and be made sin for you. He would take upon himself all of your sin, all of your shame. He would pay it in full. He would nail your sin to the cross. He would declare, it is finished. He would rise from the grave demonstrating that sin and Satan and death had no hold on him. He is the victor. He is the one you can trust and follow. And for you today, listen, the obedience and the belief are one and the same. It is for you today to turn from your sin, to repent, and to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and your master today. In this very moment, you don't need to stop and pray with somebody. You can pause right now and in the quietness of your heart, you can go before the Lord Almighty and you can receive his righteousness and he can take your sin. And you see, when we put our faith in him for forgiveness of sins, our slate is wiped clean. He takes our sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. He makes us as white as snow, but that's, that's not all. Again, remember, if he just took away our sin, that would make us simply morally neutral before God. But in Christ, we now have a perfect righteousness, a perfect standing, not, listen, based on our merits, but based on his merits. Because of that, he treats us now as sons of God, giving us all the rights of a firstborn son in his family. Every one of us, his grace lavished upon us so that when Satan, here's, here's the key, listen, so that when Satan comes and accuses us and he says all these things, you're pathetic, you're worthless, who do you think you are? You have no right to be with God's people. You have no right to sing God's praises. You have no right to do anything worthy of God because of all that you are and all that you've done. You can come along and say, no, yes, Satan, I, I agree that that should be true of me, but you want to know what's also true? I am not standing here upon my own righteousness. I stand upon the rock, Jesus Christ, and in his righteousness, and he is a rock that cannot be moved. Amen? Amen. Do, you, do you see the difference this makes in the battle? 
You don't have to give in to the enemy's accusations and condemnation. You can stand upon the truth of the scriptures. You can stand upon the truth of what Paul says in Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time Satan wants to level another right accusation at you, here's what you know. You have an advocate beside the throne in Jesus Christ. He stands on your behalf. And every time Satan says, here's another one, Jesus says, good, I paid for that too. Here's another one. I paid for that already. He's worthless. No, he's not. He was worthy of the blood of my own son. He is valuable, and she is valuable and precious to me. That is my child. That is my bride. That is the beloved of God. Man, what strength for the battle. That's what must be believed as we put on the breastplate. That's how we put it on. We believe this with all of our hearts because the Bible says it's true, because God says it's true of me. And what God says is true of me is so much more important than what Satan or any other person says of me. Amen? That's what we believe, but, but what must we then obey? We have the doctrine of imputed righteousness, but we also have the doctrine of practical righteousness where God calls us to live in a righteous way. We have a righteousness that's not our own, but God wants to lead us, as the scriptures say, down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, there is a work of sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit that is meant to happen in the life of every single follower of Jesus Christ. So when we begin to obey God and walk in righteousness... We now remove, again, so much of the enemy's ammunition. When we're obeying God, when we remove the enemy's opportunity to accuse and condemn us, when we behave and do what God is calling us to do, I mean, most of us, we hear the believing part, we're like, yeah, I can do that, right? The, I, I'm on board with the believing part, Ian. It's the behaving part that I'm struggling with. I get it but you need to see that there are two sides of the same coin. That, that you're not totally protected, so to speak, in the midst of the battle until you are both believing and behaving. It starts with believing, but it has to work itself out in behaving, in obeying. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, remember that, that whole section? And again, reminiscent of the terminology here, to put on but, but he says we got to put off and we put on. We're constantly in this, this battle against our flesh. We're constantly putting off the old man and, and our, our sinful flesh. And we're putting on the new person we are in Christ. We're trying to become who we already are in Christ Jesus. Practically becoming who we are positionally in him. And it's because of our beliefs that we can now properly behave. You see, we are grounded in the truth of who we are before God. We are sealed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now we are striving to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. You know, there is a, a real sense of urgency that Paul has kind of infused into the verbs here. This idea of standing and withstanding Commentators kind of pick up on, on the, the tense of the verb, and, and, and most commentators believe that there's a real implication of urgency. 
Like this, this is, it, it's not just something that we believe and we know it's something we gotta do. It's something we have to actively right now intentionally begin to get after. And if we don't, we have to see the devastating consequences for failing to do so. Listen, Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 12, 12, I want just to remind you of what we saw last week. The, the, the enemy has been defeated, but he is not running with his tail tucked between his legs. He is terrifyingly, ferociously roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I mean, he is actively, intentionally on it. He is going after you. He is going after the souls of others. He's going after your marriage. He's going after your kids. He is on the prowl, and he is attacking, and he is relentless. Because, as Revelation 12, 12 says, he knows his time is short. He knows it. He knows the day of his final defeat is coming and he will do everything he can in the window that he has to accomplish and inflict the greatest amount of damage that he possibly can. So let me ask you, Christian, do you too realize that your time is short? Satan knows it. He he knows it. But the Bible repeatedly calls us to consider. Do you know how short your time is. In fact, in, in, a, in some sense, a parallel passage, you don't have to turn there. Let me, let me just read it to you. In Romans chapter 13, l- listen to this. Paul writes to the, the church in Rome, and here's what he says. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on, listen to this language, church, the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but here's the key. Here's the key, church. Listen, this is the most important thing I'm going to say in this whole message. What does it mean to put on the armor of God? Here it is right here. Paul says it in the most succinct and powerful way, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it's not a question of will you be attacked, but a question of will you be ready. And in the end, it's less a question of what you will be wearing than it is a question of who you will be wearing. Will you be girded with the belt of truth? Will you be strapping on the breastplate of righteousness, suited up in the armor of God, having put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we do, listen, when we do, we are making a declaration to the enemy. I have one defense. I have one argument. I have one ultimate piece of armor. It's Jesus Christ, and he has already defeated you at the cross. He and he alone is what we need. And the goal of the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul is to tell us 
that we need to stand firmly in him. Let's pray that God makes this so. Father in heaven, we just begin by confessing to you, Lord, our weakness and our inability. And God, we want to learn to to boast not in our strength, but in our weakness, Lord. We want to revel in the fact that, Father, we are too weak to save ourselves because, Father, that causes us to then revel more greatly in the fact that you are strong and you are strong enough to save us and that you loved us enough to see us, Lord, losing the battle, to see us already lost and dead, but to come alongside of us, to scoop us up in your arms and to breathe life through the Spirit into us. And God, we confess to you now how desperately we need you Forgive us, Lord, for daily trying to strap on an armor of our own making, an armor of our own righteousness, of our own beliefs, and failing, Lord, to draw back into you and to believe what you say is true about us, about yourself, about the world, about our enemy, about the future, of trying to live in a righteousness, Lord, that we think can somehow earn us praise from you or a right standing with you. God, we want to be pleasing to you, but we believe, Lord, with all of our hearts, it starts with saying how much we need you. So, God, we confess that together. Lord, we need you. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us every single day to realize in increasing ways how desperately we need you, but how gracious you have been to give us all of yourself. Help us now, we pray, Lord, to stand firm in the strength of your might, putting on the whole armor that you have given us, that you alone could give us. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.